morning again. In case you missed it at the beginning, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, we're going to be in John chapter 20. We're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. And during this, uh, as a reminder, if you've been here, you know this, but if you haven't, This month of February, there's four Sundays this month in February, and we're taking each of the four Sundays to look at a different aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we looked at hearing, hearing the call of Jesus, hearing the call of the gospel. Last week, we looked at repentance, of repenting of our sin and turning towards Christ. This week, we're going to be looking at belief, believing the gospel, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at following Jesus, living a life in light of what he has done for us. And I want to mention, because when you kind of go in order of those four things, it sounds like they're just, they're, they're very sequential, one, two, three, four. And maybe you think that they just kind of happen one time in your life. Um, and they certainly do happen. There's, there's a sense in which each one of those things have an initial first entry into your life. There's a first time, no matter what your age is, that you first heard the gospel, heard the truth of the gospel. There's a time in your life when you first began to repent of sin and turn to Christ. There's a first time in your life where you ex- exercised belief and faith. And there's a first time in your life when you started to follow Christ and exhibit fruits of the Spirit in your life as a result of your regenerated heart. But those four things are also, they're not just one and dones, they are all parts of our life continually as a disciple of Christ. We are constantly hearing and in need of hearing the gospel and being reminded of who we are and who God is. We're constantly in need of needing to repent of our sin as we discover it and take it to Christ, ask for forgiveness and ask for his help to put on righteousness instead. We're tempted to disbelieve and have lack of faith or weak faith. And so we're continually going to God and asking for our faith, for our trust to be renewed. And we're continually working by the power of the Spirit to put on righteousness, exhibit fruits of the Spirit, and to do good works that are in keeping with our faith and repentance. So these four things are all of life for every disciple of Christ. And I just wanted to mention that as we, especially this morning, look at our topic, our theme of the day, which is believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. Hebrews 11.1 offers us a very famous definition of belief, of faith. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is receiving It's accepting and it's resting on the Lord Jesus Christ for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. It's resting on him for being declared righteous based on his sacrificial death, his sacrificial life and death for us. It's also resting on him for our sanctification, for the power of his spirit to make us more like Christ. And it's resting on him for the hope that our bodies one day will be resurrected with him and we will spend eternity worshiping him in the new heavens and new earth. Faith is receiving and resting on Christ for all of those benefits. And this morning, as we've been doing each week this month in February, we've been using a text from the Gospel of John to help us to consider these aspects of discipleship. 
And this morning, our text is John 20, verses 24 through 31, which will be familiar to many if you have been in the church for some period of time. I'm going to read this and pray, and then we'll take a look at it together. So this is John 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for your word, and so we ask for your help this morning that you would open our eyes and help us to perceive wonderful things out of it. I pray that as we consider belief, as we consider faith and what your word teaches about that this morning, that you would strengthen the faith of each one here. And if there's anyone here that does not have faith in you, that is not believing the gospel, is not trusting in you as their savior, that they would do that today, that they would turn in repentance and faith towards you and accept you as their Lord and savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's the evening of Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And the disciples of Jesus are hiding behind locked doors. Their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus, he's just been executed two days earlier. And these disciples are understandably afraid of what might happen next. They're afraid of what might happen to them. And earlier in the day, they had discovered that Jesus was no longer in his tomb. He was no longer in his grave. And this was initially met with a combination of amazement and confusion, and for some, belief, or at least seeds of belief. And as the disciples were huddled together that night, the night of his resurrection, the Lord Jesus appears to them in the room where the doors are locked. And he shows them his hands where the nails had pierced through all the way to the wood of the cross. And he shows them his side where it was pierced by the soldier's spear. And he greets them by saying, peace be with you, which is a common way of greeting someone in that time, but it also can hold a deeper meaning. There is now peace that those disciples have. They can experience peace with God because the Father has accepted the work of Christ 
his sacrifice for them and has shown this by raising him from the dead by the power of the Spirit so the disciples can have peace with God. And so he commissions, Jesus commissions the disciples to go as messengers of this good news, to call people to repentance and faith so that they can receive forgiveness of their sins. This encounter, what I've just described, is what happens in the verses immediately preceding the verses that I just read. What I just talked about is in verses 19 through 23, and as we come to our text this morning, that is what has happened. And in that room where Jesus appears to them, the text isn't explicit, but it is likely fair to conclude that it was 10 of the original 12 disciples that were in that room. One of them, obviously Judas, who has betrayed the Lord, is no longer with them. And then another, for reasons we don't know, is Thomas. And the text says, as we read this morning, that he was not with them at that time when Jesus first appeared to them. He was not with them when they saw his hands and his side. And even though his friends, his disciples, tell him what they have seen, he refuses to believe them. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe He refuses his friend's testimonial evidence to believe what they're telling him about what they have seen. He's essentially saying, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see his hands and his side. But until then, I will never, ever believe. Unfortunately for Thomas, this episode is recorded in Scripture, and so we have come to know him. If you've been in the church or just familiar with kind of religious terminology, we've come to know him as Doubting Thomas an elegant adjective to have attached to your name, but he is refusing to believe what he has heard. Now, this might not be a complete picture of who Thomas is. In John chapter 11, there's some indication that he was actually very devoted to Jesus and willing to die with him. But nonetheless, here he is with weak and perhaps no faith at all. And so a week later, the disciples are again gathered in a building, in a room, behind locked doors, and this time Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears yet again. And despite Thomas's failure to believe, Jesus meets him with grace. He once again says, peace be with you, addressing everyone there. And he gives Thomas what he was asking for. He shows him the marks in his hands. He shows them his side. He's providing the living proof of what Thomas asked for, proof of his resurrection, that yes, I am here, I am back, I have raised from the dead. So he speaks grace to him, he gives some evidence, and then he calls Thomas, do not believe, do not disbelieve, but rather believe. Receive the evidence of the resurrection. Have faith that I am alive. And how does Thomas respond? Verse 28, he emphatically confesses his faith, exclaiming, my Lord and my God. Through the grace of his Savior, Thomas' eyes are opened, and he responds with faith. He responds with belief. 
And what we see here as Jesus responds to his confession is that Thomas, along with the other disciples, they have believed because they have seen. They have seen Jesus Christ. They have seen his hands. They have seen his side. They were able to look at these things and believe it for themselves and see it for themselves. But all of those, including us, who have lived since the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, we have not had the same opportunity to see him face to face, to see with our eyes visual evidence that he is raised from the dead. But that doesn't mean that we can't believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Even though we haven't seen him with our eyes, God's people are able to respond and have faith, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith does not come by sight, but it comes by listening. It comes by listening to the word of God, which has been written and preserved so that we can believe. This is what John says is the purpose of his gospel. In verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And obviously, John is talking about this gospel that he's put together and written, but the same principle can apply to the rest of Scripture, that Scripture has been written and preserved for us to hear and to read and to listen to as evidence that Christ is our Savior that we can have belief and faith. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10. He asks some rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? As I said, these are rhetorical questions, so obviously the conclusion here is to believe in Christ, to have faith, Paul is saying that you need to hear the word of God and you need to be taught the word of God. And he puts it more plainly just a few verses later where he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And ultimately, this faith, this ability to believe is a gift from God. It is produced within us by the Holy Spirit who brings us from death to life and enables our eyes to be opened so that we can read and understand and have faith in what the scriptures teach us about Christ. And as a result, we receive all the blessings of our union with him through faith. So we see in this passage that we are to believe in Jesus, that we are to have faith in Christ, but what is faith. How do we define faith? And in particular, how do we define saving faith, a faith that leads to salvation? Well, historically, theologians within the church have identified three components or three elements of saving faith. And those three are knowledge, conviction, and trust. So knowledge, conviction, and trust. So first, knowledge. The gospel means good news, right? And news, as we all know, news includes information. It includes data. It includes facts that are presented to us. Now, the gospel is certainly more than just information and data and facts, but it's not 
less than that. The Bible includes information about the gospel. And it's information that we need to know in order to have faith. And our knowledge may be more or less defined and refined and matured depending on who you are or where you are in your life. But in general, you need to know some basic things that the Bible says. We need to know that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed forever, created the universe, created all that's in the world, including men and women. And everything was good. But humanity represented by Adam, sinned, rebelled against God, disobeyed God, and the ramifications of that are severe and continue on to this day where we are separated from God and choose by default, apart from him, to not follow him and to not obey. But we also know that there's redemption through Jesus Christ, son of God, also human, two natures in one person, and that he came and died for sinners to reconcile us back to God, and that one day he is returning to judge the living and the dead. And so there are, there are aspects of that that we have to know. We have to understand that we are sinners and we need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. So you need knowledge of some fundamental truths. So that's the fundamental truth. That's the first part of faith. The second part of faith is you, not, you don't just need knowledge, you don't just need to know what the Bible says, understand what the facts are, but you also need to have conviction. You need knowledge and conviction. We must be convicted and convinced in our mind and in our hearts that what the Bible says is true, that we agree, that we accept what those truth claims are of the Bible. For example, it is not just enough to know that the Bible teaches that humans are sinful and that Jesus came to save sinners. It's not just enough to know that, but you have to agree with that statement. You have to essentially say, I am a sinner, I need to be saved, and Jesus is the only way to save me. So those are important. You need to know things. (laughs) You need to be convicted about those true things. But even just knowledge and conviction is not sufficient. In James, we read that demons believe right and true things about God. But their response is not one of joy in the Lord. Their response is one of terror because they are not one of his. And he is opposed to them. So we need more than just knowledge. And we need more than just conviction we need the third component of saving faith, which is trust. Knowledge, conviction, and then finally, trust. And trust is receiving and resting in Christ alone for our salvation. We give up relying on ourselves or in other things, any other idol, but instead we rely solely in the person of Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. And he is the only one who is worthy of our confidence because who he has demonstrated, who he is, and what he has done. To illustrate what this looks like, this idea of knowledge and conviction and trust, I was uh, was reminded of a story from my childhood. So uh, my grandmother had five grandkids, me, my brother, and then we had three cousins. 
and she was a wonderful grandma. She loved us, demonstrated her love to us by giving us some great gifts and spending wonderful time with us. And one of the things that she offered for each of us, each of us five grandkids, was the opportunity to pick anywhere we wanted to go after we finished eighth grade, which is pretty neat, pretty cool trip. So I'm the first one, I'm the oldest of the five grandkids, and so I got to pick first. And uh, middle school Jeff was uh, very afraid of heights and terrified to fly, so I would not get on an airplane to go anywhere, which limits you then to, you know, basically the continental United States or Canada or Mexico, because you've got to stay on the ground, because I'm scared to get on the plane. And, you know, it's, it, so it turns out I picked Florida because, hey, I get to go see Disney World and Epcot and Universal Studios, and we drove all around Florida and saw Key West, 90 miles from Cuba, tried some alligator. It was good. It was a great trip. But uh, it limited my choices because I was afraid to fly, right? Um, my brother, five years later, uh, was under no similar affliction of fear of flying, and he picked Germany, so he got to go to Germany. <laughs> And uh, I have no bitterness <laughs> to this day. So I was afraid to fly, wouldn't fly. So how did we get there? We got on the train. We got on, uh, took the Amtrak from Milwaukee to Orlando. It's actually my first time coming through D.C., went through Union Station. It's my first time here in town. It's a long trip, long trip. <laughs> And so even, what, 13, 14-year-old me, at that point, I would have known how air travel works. I wouldn't have known all the physics and details, right? I would have known, okay, planes have wings and engines, and air goes over the wings, and you fly, and that's how air travel works. <laughs> and I would, have, I would have likely had agreement that air travel is very safe, that crashes and accidents and problems are very few and very far between, and that certainly would make it there in one piece, and everything would be fine. But I didn't have trust. I didn't trust what I knew and what I probably agreed with back then even. I didn't trust that what I knew, what I was convicted of. I didn't get on the plane. I didn't risk my life on getting that plane. And so that is an illustration of where faith can break down. And also where the analogy breaks down a little bit is that in my case, I was able to enjoy that trip. There was, there was a mode of transportation not flying to get to Orlando, to get to Florida, right? We could take the train, we could take in the bus, we could have driven. Um, there were multiple ways to get to the Magic Kingdom. But at the risk of sounding a little corny, but I do want to make this point clear, many ways to get to the Magic Kingdom... There's only one way to get to the kingdom of God. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am that way, and no one can come to the Father except by me. Now, there are Christians with strong faith, and there are Christians with weak faith. The book of Hebrews acknowledges that there are spiritually mature Christians and there are spiritually immature Christians. But whether a Christian is saved is not dependent on the quality or the strength of their faith, if it is true faith, 
Rather, salvation depends upon the strength of the object of our faith, the strength and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, back to my trip to Florida, let's imagine an alternate history here where instead of taking the Amtrak, my my grandmother and I do get on that plane. And my grandma, flown before, done it several times, gets on the plane confidently, buckles herself in, is confident as we tear down the runway, uh, is not bothered by bumps of turbulence during the flight, and is calm and cool as the plane touches down and lands in sunny Orlando, Florida. And then there's me, 14-year-old Jeff, scared to fly, getting on the plane, hands trembling as I buckle myself in. My eyes are closed as we're speeding down the runway, grasping the armrest as hard as I can with every bump of turbulence that we experience and grimacing as I look out the window as we approach the runway, wondering what horrible thing is about to befall us. And the plane touches down and lands and stops and taxis and takes us to the gate and we get off. Which one of us made it to Florida? Was it my grandma, the confident one, the one with the strong faith? Or was it me, the one who lacked confidence, shaky confidence, weak faith? Which one of us made it? Well, the answer is yes. Of course, we both made it. Because it wasn't the strength of our faith that got us to our destination. It was the object of our faith. It was the plane that was constructed and operated the way it was supposed to, and it was the pilots who were trained and experts in what they were doing that got us there. It was the object of our faith that got us there. And so it is with Christ. He is the object of our saving faith. He is strong. He is mighty. He is trustworthy. And he will deliver us to our destination. So Christian, if your faith is weak, take comfort in knowing that you have a strong Savior and that he loves you. But we don't have to settle for a weak faith, nor should we settle for a weak faith. We should want our faith in Christ. We should want our confidence in the Lord to grow and mature in our life. John says in our passage again this morning that the things Jesus said, the things that Jesus did, were written down so that we may believe, so that we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And this means, as we've talked about already, faith comes through hearing the word of God. And so our faith is ordinarily produced and strengthened by listening to the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to understand and believe what it says. And now this can certainly happen on a personal level, reading your Bible and praying early in the morning or at your lunch break or later in the evening when things are quiet, can certainly happen then. But our faith is also strengthened by what we do together. 
Our faith is strengthened when we study the Bible and pray together in our discipleship groups and in our community groups. Our faith is strengthened together when we read scripture and talk about the things of God with the people in our house, with people in our house, people, our families, with our children. And our faith is strengthened through what we do here on Sunday morning worship when we gather together as a church to read scripture together, to pray together in confession, which we did before, and in thankfulness to our Savior when we gather to hear God's word preached together, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together, to take the Lord's Supper together. This is one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews cautioned us strongly to not forsake gathering together. It's not because going to church is just what we are supposed to do. It's that going to church, or rather gathering as the church is good for our souls. It's good for our faith. Most of you will remember that as a church, last year we went through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we did that each week, and it served as a guide for us as we prayed together each week corporately. And as we get ready to close this morning, I wanted to revisit one of the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarizes what we have been talking about today, what we've been talking about this morning. And it defines for us, it asks for us, what is faith? What is true faith? And so this is Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism, question 21. The question is, what is true faith? The answer, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust, which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel, that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also. And here's what he's granted. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace, granted solely by Christ's merit. This is what true faith is. It is resting and receiving on Jesus Christ for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Jesus stands ready to bless any who come to him, though they haven't seen him, yet they believe in him, yet they have faith in him. And he is calling each one of us to join with the Apostle Thomas in claiming him as our Lord and our God. And in doing so, we will experience the joy that another apostle, the Apostle Peter, describes for us in his first letter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray.
Father, it is, it is good news for those of us who have lived on this side of your resurrection and your ascension. It's good news for us who have not seen you with our eyes that we can still be saved by you, that we can know you and rest in your love and care and provision for us. And Lord, we can do this because we have your word, we have the scriptures, and we have your spirit which regenerates us, opens our eyes, causes us to see and understand, to be convicted, and to trust you as our Savior, to remedy the problem that is in each one of our hearts, the fact that we are separated from you, and we need to be reconciled to you. We are so thankful, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be reconciled by you. And so, Lord, whether our faith is strong or weak, we know that it is the object of our faith. It is our good and gracious and almighty Savior who holds us. And, Lord, we ask that through your word, through your spirit, and through the members of this church helping each other, encouraging each other, helping us to mature and grow, that our faith in you would not weaken, but that it would grow, that it would strengthen, and that we would have great assurance and joy and peace knowing that you have saved us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.